This week, a rather unusual researcher training course. We've had tears. We've had rage. Uh, you can feel the tension in the air. And buried in a menagerie of fossils, a tooth from an ancestor of the mysterious hobbit. Crocodiles, Komodo dragons, uh, frogs, birds. Then it was bingo. We had the first uh, molar. Plus Google's latest attempts to build a useful quantum computer. This is The Nature Podcast for June the 9th, 2016. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Compared with your average researcher training course, the sessions John Chibnall runs get pretty emotional. We've had tears. We've had rage. (laughs) We have had disregard. Researchers come from all over the US to attend. But it's not the kind of thing they want to put on their CV afterwards. They're afraid. They're embarrassed. Uh, You can feel the tension in the air. The course is called the Professionalism and Integrity Programme, and the participants are all there because they committed research misconduct. People who have been accused of of, uh, plagiarism, of fabrication of data, a fair number of uh, laboratory animal scientists who um, had uh, difficulties with regard to the care and treatment of their animals. The programme is a way to remedy those problems by reflecting on what led up to them and how they could be stopped from happening again. Over the last few years, nearly 40 researchers have been sent by their institutions to attend the intensive workshop, usually after having their research privileges suspended. Here's James Dubois, who co-created the course with John Chibnall. In most years, universities find that they have a couple of investigators who are in trouble for one reason or another. And traditionally, universities have had sort of two extreme options. On the one hand, they could terminate employment. And on the other hand, they could have them repeat some training that they've already done on knowledge of the rules. And we felt that neither option was fully adequate. These participants are not career fraudsters. Those would usually have their employment terminated. They're usually researchers that the university wants to retain. The head of a lab, well-funded, good publication record. You know, we noticed that for physicians who'd gotten into some sort of trouble, either prescribing wrongly or boundary issues with patients, uh, anger management issues, there are training courses to help them get back on track and... Uh, We thought, why don't we have something like this for researchers? The course starts with general discussion about what drew the participants to research in the first place and what they like about it. Then the group talks about assumptions or unspoken rules that can land people in trouble. On the second day, they tell their stories. Uh, Most of the day is devoted to allowing the participants to tell their story in their own words, virtually at any length they they desire and um and and there is some catharsis there i mean people have told us i have never told this story revelations admissions and crying lots of people cry possibly in as many as half of the sessions someone does it's been a very painful experience undergoing the investigations and um you know feeling that their jobs were um, being threatened As a group, everyone gets involved discussing what factors led to the contravention and what they could have done differently to avoid it. Lastly, each researcher writes a development plan that they take back with them to their lab. Chibnall, Dubois and their colleagues call them regularly to check in and see how the plan is going. 
Scientists who've gone through the programme report being more satisfied than before with their work environment. One institution feeding back on the course said the change in their PI's behaviour was, quote, different as night and day over the last few months, end quote. But couldn't all this be avoided? Couldn't misconduct be better prevented rather than intensely picked over after the fact? Preventive education is only so effective. So, for example, most Americans know what it takes to lose weight. You reduce caloric intake, you increase activity to burn more calories, and, you know, preventive training is easy. It's fairly clear, right? But motivating people then to do that is much more difficult. After their first heart attack, people are much more likely to um, actually eat less and exercise more. And I would say it's a bit analogous here when you're talking about someone needing to change the way they think about compliance to form new habits. They're much more motivated after they've been investigated. No kidding. Dubois also stresses that the researchers he sees on the course are in many ways just like everybody else. They're not bad apples. You know, people say, uh, why on earth are you doing this? You're wasting resources on people who are breaking rules when there are so many good researchers struggling to find funding. And, you know, I guess the answer I would give is that if good researchers aren't careful, this could happen to them because you realize how easy it could be to slip up in these, these ways, particularly when you're successful and very busy. That was James Dubois and John Chibnall, who run the Professionalism and Integrity Programme at the University of Washington in St. Louis. Coming up later in the show, can the Hobbit's ancestors shed light on how this human relative ended up so small? But first, Google have earned a reputation for their cutting-edge research projects, things like artificial intelligence and driverless cars. So maybe it shouldn't surprise you that they're also having a crack at quantum computing. Helmut Katzgraber, a computational physicist at Texas A&M University, explained to me why Google is so keen to get involved in what has long been an academic challenge. Google basically wants to do machine learning. And, for example, image recognition, in principle, could be tackled on a quantum device. If the technology is promising, it could accelerate the detection of images. You know, it could tell you, are you looking at the dog on a photo or are you looking at your dog on a photo? But Google aren't going to be using a quantum computer to carry out their image recognition just yet. Although quantum computers have the potential to tackle some tricky problems, like image recognition, much better than classical computers, they're still very much in the R&D stages. In fact, at the moment, there's only one company selling quantum computers. D-Wave. The quantum chip in the latest D-Wave machine is about the size of a stamp. But you wouldn't guess it, as the chip is housed within a massive black box, far bigger than a person, that keeps it cool and protects it from radiation. Personally, I think it is a huge breakthrough. It is really the first commercially available, useful and semi-programmable quantum architecture. So what did Google do? They bought one, a SNP at around $10 million. Hartmut Naven heads the Quantum Artificial Intelligence Lab at Google. He explains what his team can learn from the D-Wave computer. When you have an engineering project and you want to get to a certain task as quickly as possible, 
then you would look at what products are already out there that go into the direction of the goal you want to accomplish. And at this point, D-Wave is the only commercial entity where you can buy a quantum processor. But the quantum processor in the D-Wave machine has some pretty hefty limitations. The chip is made up of 1,097 qubits, the building blocks of a quantum computer. Ideally, you'd like each qubit to be able to talk with all the others. But each D-Wave qubit can only talk to six others, limiting how quickly tasks can be crunched through. Another problem is that D-Wave's machine is an analogue computer. This means performing calculations on it is a bit like turning a smooth dial. You'll always be a little bit out, unlike flicking a series of precise switches. The smooth dial system of an analogue computer makes it hard to accurately store numbers. This limits the types of problems that could be solved on a computer like D-Waves. But, in a proof-of-concept paper out this week, Google have found a way around this problem. Build a D-Wave-like computer, which works like the set of switches, digitally. With a digital circuit, you would not have this problem. In principle, if you had enough qubits, you could represent numbers with very high precision. At the moment, the Google setup isn't very precise, because it's tiny. It only has 9 qubits, compared to the D-Wave's 1097. But Google have shown that a scaled-up version of their circuit should be able to tackle certain problems that the D-Wave computer can't. For example, it could perform simulations of electrons in a material, enabling predictions of properties like superconductivity. It's clear that Google are investing a lot of time and energy into overcoming the hurdles of building quantum computers. But how do academics feel about big companies like Google getting involved? Helmut again. There is a bit of a, a brain drain because these companies tend to make offers to academics that no academic salary, for example, could compete with. And so there is a bit of a hiring away from research institutions. Now, on the positive side, I have to really, really say that it has been extremely fruitful for us to work with Google on certain problems. In fact, Helmut is amazed just how collaborative Google have been. And, overall, he thinks that the more attention the subject gets, the better for everyone who's hoping to build a quantum computer. Up until now, it has been just a fun physics experiment to play with, because, you see, you can't really solve any world-class problems on such a machine yet. But the fact that these large corporations have joined in, uh, it has gotten the interest of the US government. So clearly this has benefited. The fact that corporations have shown interest means now that funding agencies from the government are very interested in also creating such devices. But although both Helmut and Hartmut are confident that quantum computers will soon prove their worth, don't get too excited. Before he left, I asked Helmut whether I could expect to have a quantum laptop within my lifetime. <laughs> uh, if you ask me personally, no. Uh, well, I'm probably a little bit older, so uh, at least I don't expect to see this in my lifetimes. And if I do, then please correct me and make an editorial note somewhere on the podcast that, you know, Helmut was wrong. Helmut Katzgraber and before him, Hartmut Naven. Check out Google's latest quantum computing paper in this week's Nature. It's that time of the show where Cory Locke pops up and brings you the research highlights, the best from outside the pages of nature. Here's Cory. Oceans around the world are polluted with thousands of tons of tiny plastic fragments that can be ingested by marine animals. 
Now researchers have shown that the plastic can change fish behavior and could even decrease their survival. The scientists exposed European perch in the lab to levels of plastic seen in the wild. They then placed the perch in a tank with predator fish. All of the perch were eaten by the predator within 24 hours, but half of the fish that were raised in plastic-free water were able to survive. The researchers say new strategies are needed to stem the flow of plastic waste into marine ecosystems. The study was in the journal Science. The spectacular collapse of the Larsen B ice shelf in Antarctica made headlines back in 2002. But researchers now say that glaciers feeding the ice shelf were speeding up towards the ocean long before Larsen B's collapse. They came to this conclusion after studying recently declassified images taken by U.S. spy satellites dating back to 1963. The team found that the speed of ice flows was higher during the 1980s than during the 60s and 70s. This suggests that Larsen B had been losing ice for far longer than previously thought. You can find the study in the journal Geophysical Research Letters. Now you may know that reporter Ewan Calloway loves hobbits. No, not the Lord of the Rings type, but the ancient species of human. The hobbit, the nickname of Homo floresiensis, is a particularly interesting species. The first hobbit fossil was found on the island of Flores in Indonesia, and it shocked researchers because it was so tiny, only a metre tall, and with a tiny brain to match. Researchers have a lot of questions about the hobbit, but two major ones are, how did it get there, and how did it end up so small? There are two new papers about hobbits in this week's issue, so Ewan rang up Gert Vandenberg, who's been involved with the new discoveries. When Homo floresiensis the Hobbit, some, some people called it. When it was discovered, what were some of the lingering mysteries about it and, and where it had come from? Well, there were um, several opinions uh, about the origins of Homo floresiensis. The most credible ones were that it was derived from Homo erectus. Homo erectus is our direct ancestor, and uh, we know that it was present in Southeast Asia, in particular in Java. But... Homo floresiensis had this, this mix of primitive and advanced characteristics, and some people think that it might have even be derived from a more primitive uh, human, uh, which was small-bodied, like Homo habilis or even Australopithecus. But the problem with that hypothesis is that uh, no Homo habilis or Australopithecus has ever been found outside uh, Africa. So tell us about your latest discovery. Well, latest discovery, we, ha we have been digging in uh, several sites in a um, basin and we find a lot of fossils of stegodon, of elephants, also of rats, crocodiles, komodo dragons, uh, frogs, birds. And then in um, 2014, three weeks before the end of the last field season, then it was bingo, we had the first uh, molar and then the next day an uh, incisor and a piece of cranium these fossils that you, that you found, do they look like hobbits? Do they look like Homo floresiensis? Yeah, that was totally unexpected, actually, because the layers where we are digging are about uh, 600,000 years older than uh, Homo floresiensis. We saw that the hypothesis that Homo floresiensis was a dwarfed form of Homo erectus was the most likely one. So we expected, actually, to find in those early layers a big-bodied Homo erectus-like 
species. But instead, what we have found now in these old layers are fossils of uh, humans very similar to uh, Homo floresiensis and even uh, a little bit smaller. What do they tell us about Homo floresiensis and the lingering mysteries surrounding it? Well, the most important thing is that 700,000 years ago, Homo floresiensis was already had this, this small-bodied uh, form. And also, the, the, the morphology of the teeth is more or less intermediate between Homo erectus and Homo floresiensis. So we can now with reasonable certainty say that, that uh, Homo floresiensis is very likely derived from Homo erectus. That population of, of humans remained isolated for a million years. So it's kind of a natural experiment in human evolution. And that's what makes it so intriguing. If you've got this potential ancestor of Homo floresiensis at you know 700,000 years ago, and it's already tiny, I don't know when Homo erectus dates to in, in Indonesia, but it's, it's not a whole lot of time before that. I mean, that, is that a really quick shrinking, if you will? Now, that's, that's quite surprising that it uh, happened so fast, because we know that humans were present on floors about 1 million years ago, and then 300,000 years later, they were already as small as, as Homo floresiensis. So they have uh, reduced their body size by about uh, half. I'm a reporter, uh, and I've written, I don't know how many stories about Homo floresiensis, more than a dozen. And every time there is always this lingering mystery about where they came from. Are we finally getting any closer to, to making sense of this fossil with your team's discovery? Yes, yes. I think we do. I think we have now strong evidence that Homo erectus was probably the ancestor. There's still many questions, of course, that we don't know. And actually, we would also like more evidence. So we would like to have a skull. Because another intriguing aspect of Homo floresiensis is that if it is indeed derived from Homo erectus, that means that the brain size of Homo erectus would have shrunk more than its body size. So it, it was his brain is relatively smaller than you should expect purely on, on a smaller body size. So that means that maybe uh, under specific conditions like on an island, our brain can have a kind of reversed evolution. Um, maybe they did not need so much brain uh, great brain mass uh, to survive on Flores. It was a relatively simple ecosystem then maybe the brain has shrunk. And that means that they would require less food because the brain is a very expensive organ. That was Gert Vandenberg from the University of Wollongong, Australia, speaking on the phone from Indonesia to reporter Ewan Calloway. You can find Ewan's full report, as well as the two papers on the new discovery, at nature.com forward slash nature. And there's even a short film about the find on our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. Finally this week, as always, it's the news chat and Davide Castelvecchi is here to chat to us. Now, first up, we have a story about experimental drugs. So obviously it takes a long time for drugs to be developed. They spend a long time in this phase where they're experimental, untested. And this is a story about how patients, very ill patients, could perhaps get hold of them more easily. Yes, so it's the idea is this compassionate use that has been granted on a case-by-case basis. A lot of times when there are uh, patients who are terminal and they've tried all available drugs and they cannot find uh, a clinical trial to enroll in, maybe they would want to do that. But maybe they've heard of some experimental drug which is not even safety tested. It's not even at the stage where it could start a clinical trial. 
occasionally they get permission to use um, drugs on a case-by-case basis. But uh, the way that this is done is not transparent. And for people who are, you know, families who are already under enormous distress, it can feel like an additional, uh, you know, torturous process to have to, you know, write to all these pharmaceutical companies and be denied and maybe without an explanation. It does appear, as you say, like a little bit patchy, the process of who might get the experimental drugs, who might not, and crucially, why companies would say yes or no to a particular usage. So what's the news, I suppose, this week about about this process? The really interesting thing that happened is our reporter, Sarah Reardon, went to a meeting in Chicago where there was this uh, sort of a pilot program presented which aimed to standardize the ways that applications can be filed and selected and so on. It's partly inspired by the way that uh, transplant organs are made available. So in this case, it was an experimental drug for multiple myeloma, and the company that is developing it received 76 applications, and which were completely anonymized. And the, the candidates were selected based on whether, uh, you know, their, their state of health and so on. The pilot uh, ended up recommending 60 of the 76 applications to go forward with the experimental drug, and the stakes are pretty high, so perhaps that isn't surprising. But when patients are denied an experimental drug, what risks is the pharma company usually trying to avoid? Yes, in in many cases, these are drugs that, for example, have never been tried uh, on children, and that a lot of these compassionate use cases are children who are in desperate need. For a pharmaceutical company, having a, a, a high-profile case in which the drug actually ended up killing the patient could be very bad for their prospects of eventually getting the drug approved. The other risk is that a lot of times experimental chemicals are made in very small amounts, and so whatever you give to a patient will not be available or may not be available for the clinical trial. This idea for streamlining the process, for making it more transparent... Could that lead to an increase in the amount of times a pharmaceutical company will say, yes, we will give you this experimental drug to test? It could, although you know, it will still be on a voluntary basis for companies to, to do this or not. It seems, though, that uh, both companies and uh, regulators and patient advocates uh, like the idea because it could, it could improve the communication, could make things easier for everyone. Okay, so from one initiative with a very clinical focus to a much more basic project now, and one that has got geneticists talking, this is called the Human Genome Project Write. And writing here means synthesising DNA. The the basic idea, the the, the headline-grabbing idea is we've learned how to read the DNA, the, the entire genome. Now we have to learn how to write it. It's a bit gimmicky, but the science behind it can be really worthwhile. The idea is that scientists know how to synthesize strands of DNA from scratch. There's even machines that that, that can assemble uh, the the nucleotides together. But until now, it's been hard to make really long strands and and make uh, entire chromosomes. It's been done in in some cases. There's a a yeast chromosome that has been a very small one that's been created— But this kind of inspirational article that was published in Science last week uh, calls for a public-private joint project to basically make an entire genome synthetically. And it's something that would 
probably cost uh, billions of dollars and take many years. But what they're asking for, they, 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 they're calling for um, uh, $100 million in, in funding to just get the project started. It reminds me a bit of, well, two things. The Human Genome Project, the project that sought to read all of the information and write it down. And secondly, the Brain Project, which has just been launched, which was a, with a $100 million initial price tag. But those two things, at least when they were launched, the rationale for them was very sort of clinical. Let's understand the brain, let's understand the genome, and then we can perhaps find ways of treating illnesses better. What's the rationale behind this project? So beyond beyond the the ability to just say we we can do it, there is also the idea of engineering a genome and lowering the cost of producing artificial DNA and also developing the technology for making very very long strands. And then maybe the, the even harder part will be to be able to engineer the gene networks that actually do things that we want to do. The project then was announced, or at least. The idea of the project was announced very recently, but there have already been some dissenting voices and people who think, well, perhaps we don't need this overarching project to get started on these questions. Yeah, some experts have commented that a lot of this is happening anyway and many labs are working on creating synthetic genomes and on improving the technology, lowering the costs. So some may see this as a, as a kind of a, a PR approach to attracting attention. Okay, so from the slightly vexed to the downright bizarre with an experiment that we're going to just tell you, tell listeners a little bit about and then direct them to an awesome video on the website for more. Davide, what on earth is this video? So it looks like uh, some kind of Godzilla being attacked by a giant eel, but it's actually an experiment with an artificial alligator head fitted with, with uh, LED lights. And it's by one of my favorite um, um, animal neuroscientists, Ken Catania from Vanderbilt University, um, who specializes in weird animals. And, and he showed um, how eels leap out of the water to stun potential attackers. And the video is really cool. I really recommend going to our website and looking at it. Yeah, not only is there a sort of disco crocodile head, but there's also an LED a really frighteningly realistic model of a human hand with LEDs in it. And the idea is the LEDs flash when the eel provides electricity, basically. Yes, when it discharges to, to stun the attacker. So to find out more about why on earth Ken Catania did that and to watch the awesome video of the Disco Croc, just head over to nature.com slash news where you'll find more details about all the other stories we've told you about. And we'll be back the same time next week. Got any feedback for us? Drop us a line, podcast at nature.com. On Twitter, Logical Libertarian gave us a shout out on his recommended list for science podcasts. He also likes John Oliver, so he clearly has pretty good taste. Thanks, Gary. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. If this episode of The Nature Podcast has whet your appetite for scientific research, check out Scientific Reports, the open access home for all scientifically sound research. They publish articles from all areas of the natural and clinical sciences. If you publish with them, you can expect fast and fair peer review and great exposure with over 2 million visitors a month to the website, nature.com srep. If you're one of the visitors, you can expect studies ranging from how to tell apart African from Asian elephant tusks using handheld X-ray devices 
to a study suggesting that pain tolerance correlates with how many friends you have. For all this and more, visit scientific reports at nature.com slash srep.